I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey there, I'm super excited to share this week's podcast with you. You'll hear towards the end of it that it came about in kind of an unexpected way. Lucy Bull and I were seated next to each other at a gallery dinner, and I didn't really know her work, so I got to know her first, and I think you'll really enjoy getting to know her as well. We'll get there in just a minute. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else, and I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable, high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O ASPEN.com and mention that you heard about Best & Co on my podcast to receive the special discount. This week on my podcast, I spoke with Lucy Bull, who makes visceral paintings that appeal directly to the senses. Synesthetic fields of shape and color, the paintings are described in sonic, tactile, even emotional terms that evade rational logic and are unique to each viewer. Worlds take shape across their varied surfaces and just as quickly fall away again. Similarly, just when the act of looking generates optical overload or disruptive dissonance, Bull's accumulations of marks reveal discernible traces of planning and hard-fought negotiations with her materials, leading the viewer back toward the concrete realities of pigment, medium, and surface. As she engages in these open-ended painterly experiments, Bull makes room for both precision and abandon, inviting viewers to participate in ever unfinished processes of creation that she choreographs but never fully controls. Born in New York in 1990, she now lives and works in Los Angeles. She and I discuss planning to be late, 
being seated next to each other at a gallery dinner, having your preferences taken into consideration, care and curiosity, talking at artwork, what photography misses, short-circuiting someone else's perspective, the speed of looking at art, being a graveyard shift worker, stolen time, loving doing what you love, what is foolish, the importance of fun and experimentation, a tabletop exhibition space, weird intimacy, hermit crabs, easing into working, wandering through paintings, and transferring the experience of making them. It's so funny how different places have their time and space rituals or customs or practices. And I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but my daughter is uh, almost pathologically early. If she's not 20 minutes early, she feels like she's late. And she's always been like that. Mm -hmm. And how old is she? <laughs> now she's 17, but uh-huh. when she, for example, was like on the ski team, she still wanted to be 20 minutes early. And you would get there and you're just basically standing on the snow for 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. But I mean, anyway. I just hate wasting time. So, like, I would never want to be early. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for like, class and and stuff like that or like you know bigger things that are actually definitely going to start on time you know I wouldn't want to miss it I hate being you know late to the movies I love seeing the first you know five minutes I love seeing all the title sequences like you know also the previews but you know otherwise like for social functions whenever I have something at my house and I say a certain time, I always expect people to be at least 30 minutes later. And I'm never ready on time either for people to come over. So there are a bunch of things that you just said that are interesting to me and, and that I identify with as well. And there's this idea that by being early, you would be wasting time, right? Because it's space that you could have filled with something else. And right. that's definitely how I operate. Like I try and squeeze every second out of every, you know, minute out of every hour. Um, yeah. And like, it's good to know. plan, you know, but, and it's kind of important to plan to even be late, which doesn't even seem to make sense, but it does. If you're <laughs> someone who's busy like you and I, you know? Yeah. I went to a an opening last night and there was a, like a pre-dinner for it. Mm -hmm. And the person who invited me, I thought was so gracious because she said exactly what time cocktails were and exactly what time the dinner was. And then exactly what time the performance was and then what time the intermission would be. And it was so gracious, you know, yeah, Um, yeah. to to then like leave it for me to figure out like where exactly I wanted to slot myself in there. Yeah. So it wasn't like the dinner that we both met at. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I, yes. I you're both starving, waiting for food for so long. I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, and I mean, to not kind of take this theme too far, but one of the things that was great about this event last night was that it was managed by the same women who are managing our gala. And they know that I'm vegan. And so even though I didn't have to say anything to anyone, like when the food came to be served for me, the first course and the second course, uh, it was vegan. And that was just a really nice touch. So, yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's, it's also, it's just, it's always wonderful to realize that people are listening to you or, you know, picking your, uh, preferences into consideration like I, I mean whenever that someone kind of goes a little bit out of their way and you know in any sort of way it always just like I don't know it feels really touching I think so too I think so too when you feel like someone does that for you what are some things that that kind of communicate that so 
During the pandemic, I I did these Instagram lives for Cultured Magazine. And one of the things that I asked people was, what's something that happened today that made you feel loved? How would you answer that question? Um, I think, you know, I think it's something about them bringing up something from a past conversation, you know, is always something that catches my attention because I think we're always talking to so many people all the time and always, you know, on social media and just like quickly chatting while in the midst of doing other things. It's like one of those sort of like comments really feels like, Oh, you know, it just seems like a slower, thoughtful reaction, you know, which I mean, speaks louder in my opinion than anything these days. Cause like, you know, a like doesn't really, mean much like a simple double tap on a photo doesn't mean much you know uh but a, you know some sort of sign that they remembered something from the past I think uh really like speaks volumes yeah that's a really nice answer and you referenced when when we met and we were seated next to each other at a gallery dinner and part of my takeaway from that evening and part of what I felt during the dinner was I felt a lot of like care and concern from you for me, even though we had never met before. And that felt oh, different for me. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, it's something that I, that I think about as I move through the world too, you know, like who's willing to kind of make the space for the feelings or the needs of someone else. And I, I really felt that from you. And, and we talked about your work and I'm excited to talk more about it on the podcast today. Mm-hmm. And the way that you showed up in our exchange made me even more curious about what you create because it made me, I don't know, curious about you and how you interact with people. You know, It was like, it was a funny thing because I feel like uh, I hate to, you know, describe my work, you know, directly or like talking at it. I usually like to have conversations around it. And, but the unusual thing was that um, you also didn't see a digital like uh, image of the work um, or like you couldn't place an image in your mind. Uh, with my name you know so like it was mm-hmm. nicer even the fact that you actually hadn't just seen an image because like they photographed so just so much um, I mean I'm, I'm happy that at least the way that they photograph kind of reveals that you're sort of missing something else because I think I mean they're so detail-oriented the way that the photograph functions kind of collapses all the detail into this weird, more condensed image, which is compelling um, because I think the associations that people have uh, are somewhat boundless. But the the fact that uh, you didn't have the uh, the image of like the work in your mind when we were talking about it kind of opened up the dialogue in a way that was cool (laughs) you know what I'm saying because like I mean obviously I would love for someone to see them in the flesh first but that's just not gonna happen you know and I you know I wish that I could just like you know not have photographic documentation of my paintings replace the actual works themselves but that's just also you know not gonna happen but uh you know above all I want people to see the works in person but it was really fun to actually kind of like approach talking about it without you having a preconceived idea of what it was I was referring to Mm -hmm. yeah I appreciated your willingness to engage in that way too and it's funny because I've been in a lot of situations where 
for example, I'm introducing someone to an artist and mm-hmm. I know the work super well. And, you know, maybe we even have an exhibition of theirs up and, and I'm, you know, introducing like a, a donor or, and I watch sometimes that kind of slightly awkward space between someone not knowing like what to ask and someone else like not knowing like what to say and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mm-hmm. wanting for everyone to feel good in the exchange. And one of the things that I love about artists is that it often mirrors life. So, you know, we're living in a time, right. Where often people don't know what to say to other people <laughs> because mm-hmm. they don't know what they think or they don't know where they're from or they don't know what they did over the yeah. weekend or <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's like kind of like how you realize maybe someone's a really close friend when you realize that you're able to maybe be with them and sort of share a sort of a weird kind of silence. You're comfortable Mm -hmm. sort of not feeling the need to say anything kind of, uh, I guess, I I don't know, because like I think about, I think about when people come to my studio and it's almost like there's an awkward silence, but I just want to kind of like give them a moment to sort of take the work in and, you know, not feel forced to like jump into conversation. And I certainly don't want to have to like jump into this performative, like, uh, you know, way of talking about my work. I want to let them kind of, you know, be drawn in and and have their moment without me uh short-circuiting their experience in any way I really avoid trying to I mean I have a lot of associations with my work but I generally avoid uh specifically talking about them because I don't want to short-circuit anyone else's reading of the work because I mean if I start to point out maybe like a weird bird or something in the painting how are they going to look at it without seeing the bird like how are they going to enter it in a different way and I'm I'm more interested in how the subjective experience uh can evolve and change and shift over time I think subjectivity is a really fascinating idea and I think it is such a significant factor to how we are in the world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's not called out that much. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's like everyone's always trying to ask, like, what's it about? What's the meaning behind this? Before they actually think about what they themselves feel. You know? Exactly. Uh think it's like important to not read about things before looking at them like I I avoid always reading about films before seeing them for that reason I mean growing up my if I ever asked my dad what a film was about he'd say oh about an hour and a half (laughs) (laughs) and I think like that's uh that's really how most forms of culture should be approached you know like blindly you know going in I mean I don't remember who talks about this but like the Mona Lisa effect how we're kind of robbed of our experience with viewing the Mona Lisa because we're known of it being this sort of masterpiece but we're not able to actually have that experience of really discovery Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot not to mention like all the like cameras like in front of it blocking our view (laughs) and the clicking sounds of the cameras going off and you know also like Monet's lingerie you know it's supposed to be this spiritual place for these specific paintings of his and the architecture is built for those paintings and Mm -hmm. you know and now when you go it's not really that 
spiritual because there's so much, uh, you know, sound and like people like taking photographs everywhere. I was really sad that I couldn't go during the pandemic because I just, I wanted to kind of have the chance to experience it without it, uh, you know, being crowded. It's interesting how a a thought comes up and then sometimes it happens. And I remember being at MoMA at some point in 2019 in New York and thinking often I have had the incredible privilege of being there when the museum's closed or, you know, like in the morning Mm -hmm. before it opens or, um, but I, I didn't tell anyone that I was coming, you know, and so I was just there in like, I don't know, a regular day at a regular time. And it was so full it was like hard to like even change direction there was almost like the sea of people you know kind of moving you past works and and towards the escalator and whatnot and and I thought you know like is there actually a tipping point at which there are too many people coming to museums and then suddenly you know I, I was there basically a year ago and um I was in front of the Demoiselle Avenue by myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. And so, I mean, of course, there were other people in the museum because it was also like a regular day and a regular time, but but no one was there. And yeah. um, it's a totally different experience. And, and I do very much like working at art with other people. And I also like the sacred experience of uh, being alone with an object. Totally. I mean, I, I definitely think I prefer going to the museum alone. Uh, growing up, my parents always like got really tired of me taking so much longer than <laughs> going through rooms. Mm. And I realized like that I never want to feel rushed going through a museum. And um, of course, it's fun to go with a friend and you start to look at pay more attention to different things it's always really interesting to see what other people are drawn to and um and so I do like to do that from time to time but I definitely think it's important to to go alone and and to feel like you can navigate freely like I I would hate to go you know at a busy time one of my favorite museums in LA is the Northern Science uh, mm-hmm. and it's usually not too crowded. And I, I feel like I can just really like, uh, comfortably, uh, move through and feels like, you know, very personal experience over there. Do you like the Norton Simon? I do. Yeah. I like the Norton Simon. And I also, um, I like the, the gardens are those at the Huntington, uh, with like I mean, the Japanese gardens and the yeah, the Huntington gardens are beautiful. I also love the garden at Norton Simon. Pasadena is kind of amazing. There's so many yeah. great little spots. <laughs> you know, I I kind of want to move over there, honestly, so I can just <laughs> make it part of my weekly ritual. Yeah, I, I was at Norton Simon laying in the grass. And some a guard came over and politely told me that I couldn't do that. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess they have benches. But I was really trying to, you know, soak it in from like a uh, reclined position. <laughs> cool. I could see I like, like a chapter in my LA life uh, moving east. Like I, I, when I moved here, I moved to Venice and I think I'm just slowly going east every few years. <laughs> and Norton Simon's a huge draw for that, I think. Tell me what it's like for you to be in your studio. Well, uh, it, I, I love being in my studio. I, uh, I'm actually not there now. I decided to, uh, you know, do this call from my hammock at home in Echo Park, which is also mm. very nice. And I feel like I'm not here enough because I'm always in my studio. Uh, right now, my studio is um, somewhat temporary. I've been subletting my friend Nancy's studio and 
it's very conveniently located. It's a short 10 minute drive from my place. I have the necessary windows, uh, you know, lots of sun. It does get quite hot in there. It's been a hot few months. Honestly, it feels like a furnace sometimes when I get there. Um, and so I've sort of become more of a graveyard shift type worker. Um, mm. and so I, you know, I get, basically I get the studio lately around noon or two and sometimes, uh, work until like 2am, 4am, 4am, sometimes even like 8am, which is really mm. funny. Like uh, not too long ago, I got stuck in some school traffic in the morning and I was like, <laughs> it was really weird to me. I like kind of forgot that people are up and heading to school like around the time, you know? Amazing. Amazing. Uh, and, you know, I haven't experienced that in a while. So uh, I don't know if there's something about working through the dead of night that I really love and I used to I used to work outside um on the alley at the like in the alley of my apartment for a little bit and I used to have to like work during the day when the sun was out and so it was a very different schedule and I you know there are some amazing perks to working outside and a lot of animals and birds and sometimes I would just even work without any music on because it was just so relaxing but um I definitely love like not having to uh be like chained to the sun in terms of like when I need to work and I love like working through the night and after a while no one's gonna like text you or call you and bother you it sort of yeah. feels like stolen time and I, I can't even tell you I think most of my paintings are like finished between four and six a.m I think that those are like these magical hours where uh you know it's it always feels really special when something finishes at four a.m or like, like there have been even times where I'd like go to bed and wake up and can't go back to sleep and I'll just head to studio and work and, and then I'll feel like I have this weird perspective on everything and, and sort of end up doing something that I, you know, maybe wouldn't have done if I had not left my bed, kind of like these experiences feel really weird, but uh, magical. And it, it, um, yeah, it feels like uh, you're kind of taking the reins in some sort of way. And, you know, it, it feels like uh, you're kind of playing with magic because you could be sleeping, you know? I loved listening to that description and painting outside and and just having a different connectivity to being awake. Right. And, mm -hmm. and then to take that one step further, which would be like having a different or magical connectivity to being alive. And I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like as an artist, you're, you know, it, it can get isolating. It's a really important job almost because you're never, you never have off hours really. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's basically, you're never going to retire, you know, <laughs> you're signing up for like kind of committing yourself to making art for the rest of your life, unless you make some sort of exit, but that in itself is kind of a statement, you know, I think about that a lot because it, it can be an isolating practice and I am a very social person, but and sometimes deadlines can get really kind of intense and but I love it I love the I love having I love having uh deadlines I love being able to do what I love I couldn't see myself doing anything else you know and 
Um, but it with that comes like sort of, you know, a real re- responsibility. And I don't know, I never want to fill anything in. And, and there's so much more pressure because it, you know, if you care about art, you know, you can't, you don't want to phone anything in. It's, it's not like a job that's consuming that uh, you just have to get done. It's, you know, the, what you want to get done has to, you know, feel true and authentic. How did you start to paint? Well, both of my parents, our artists my, my, dad, my, my dad makes documentary film but he studied fine art uh and so I mean I grew up in a very creative household and my mom would do really fun projects with my sister and I and my sister and I would also constantly be making weird games with each other and we were very creative together and like would even use our dad's video camera and um so I feel like I've always been an artist uh and you know but really kind of made those decisions to focus on art like in high school like I could have you know, done music class, but I needed to take APR, you know what I mean? And I went to art school and I mean, both my parents tried to persuade me to study something else because they knew knew how hard it was, but um, they also understood when I needed to go, you know? It's funny because it seems like there are so many artists right now and you know, it used there used to be this idea of like the the like artist life is a struggle, <laughs> and like the artist working in the basement, you know, and and then at a certain point it became this. There was this vision of the artist as celebrity, and it was like an appealing job title. And um, I don't know. I just think that that's it's the way I work and think and navigate the world like it's art and um it always was and uh so there was like no question to me going into art um and I knew that it would be difficult but something about I don't know there's it's like the most foolish it's kind of like you, you're foolish enough to be an artist or something like all arts are fools <laughs> to think mm-hmm. that like other people would care about what they're doing so much you know but you know that's a, an important part of it that's such an I mean such an interesting idea right this idea of you know what's foolish and what is whatever the opposite of foolish would be, right? Which I don't know what it is, like smart, you know, or insightful (laughs) or, yeah, optimistic or, I don't know, it's interesting to think about because I like things that are- Yeah, there isn't like a direct opposite, really. No, and often things are exactly their opposite as well. Like both things are true, so. Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of, artists are fools myself included but also a weird kind of genius uh yeah and it's you know definitely a like weird with a capital w you know not classic type of genius um you know and i also think that artists shouldn't really be expected to articulate what they're doing and it's funny because like, I think a lot of the artists that are successful are more business minded and are able to do that. And um, it's sort of unfortunate that some real art geniuses aren't championed because they're unable to kind of cross over into business realm. But I mean, they should be able to just, you know, make their work and not have to talk about it I think 
when I was in art school, I think that that sort of plagued me, this idea of like having to explain myself and what I was exploring. And it felt very limiting at the time. And I was too concerned of who my audience was and what they would respond to. And it wasn't until well after I left and graduated that I feel like I really made work that was for myself that I wanted to see and uh, and what felt true to me. And that's also when others started to respond to it, you know? Yeah. When you were talking about how it requires maybe a certain foolishness to be able to be an artist, and I see it as like a positive, right? Like not being so kind of hewn in by convention or expectation and mm-hmm. being open to, you know, all the possibilities. And and when you talked about why that term would be associated with being an artist instead of something which was maybe an economic consideration, which is what maybe some people would associate with like a, a foolishness of being an artist. Instead, you talked about the idea that people would be interested in in what you were doing, that that would somehow be, be foolish to to think that. Uh, and then to just now share that once you kind of let go of those notions of doing something for someone else and just creating from a authentic, perfectly authentic place, that that's when the flow started to happen. It, it's interesting mm-hmm. how all of those things are kind of connecting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to have fun and feel like uh, you can experiment and play. And that's when uh, really like exciting things happen. Uh, eventually, if you continue to work at something and, and experiment, uh, you'll hit a vein and that's really exciting and also like not really t- concerning yourself with an audience or you know just like sort of really preserving uh, the process um, I think like I think it's really important to because I mean art is a visual language and and it's also a place for uh the mind to wander and for subconscious for the subconscious to dwell and for instance i mean it's a scary time right now like i feel like art should be a place where uh the taboo can be explored and um we're in the cancel culture world right now and that's when things are really getting scary I think when people aren't uh exploring their subconscious and you know and not sublimating their desires and art making but like that's when things maybe will get pretty scary when people like actually just kind of like you know actually start to act on their subconscious instead of sublimating it into an, a form of art making, you know? Hmm. Can you say more about that? I feel like I'm like, you know, meandering and rambling <laughs> and, and like we could go in so many different directions with this, but that is something that I think about a lot. You recently curated a show. It's up I now. It looks amazing. Is it the first show that you've curated? And I'm really interested in the idea of the show and also from my perspective, how it might connect, at least for me, to ideas that I think are in your work. But I'd love to hear you talk about it. Firstly, it's not the first show I've curated. I actually have a project space that I call from the desk of Lucy Bull. And mm-hmm. I started that out of my apartment in 2017. And with that, 
it's called From the Dust of Lucy Bowl because it started as a tabletop exhibition space. I had this uh, salvaged long piece of wood that had like a layer of metal on top of it that I I salvaged from the walk streets of Venice and logged up to my apartment and placed on some mini sawhorses. So it's not even much of a desk as much of a coffee table. <laughs> uh, and it was in my studio in East Hollywood at the time. And I, I really just, I wanted to kind of just create a space where I could invite friends to have a more intimate viewing of art and I would I'd exhibit artists underneath glass or um, my friends who do the collaborative ficus interface they actually did the first show of the desk and then for a group show they made um, special supportive uh, terrazzo pieces that can turn the desk into a vitrine and I also showed work on top of the glass and underneath and and a lot of these shows evolved into other types of shows and there was a real conversation that kind of started to emerge between the artists exhibiting on the desk because everyone was making something very specific to that context and uh even would have musical performances in my apartment which always felt very special and bizarre so I mean all of these exhibitions and performances really felt so, like something that wouldn't have happened otherwise and uh I, I kind of wish that there would be more DIY culture in LA like I feel like uh yeah. there, there is a culture here of that but it seems to be diminishing or maybe I don't know about everything <laughs> um, but uh -huh. you know there are some really cool things happening under in people's bathrooms and closets and and sometimes they're short-lived but I I'm really a huge advocate for these domestically like located shows because they always feel like a weird gathering and mix of people and every single one was so different from the next and I even did this weird uh series of shows called from the Christmas tree of Lucy Bowl and I did those in, in 2020 I carried them with my friend Naoki Sudarshudo who's also a great artist and he's one of the uh directors at Bellamy where I curated the group show that you just mentioned and we uh, asked about like 30 artists for each of those shows to make something for the tree. We would have like a certain artist do the, you know, the angel, quote unquote, an angel. And, uh, yeah. and um, like for the second one, Matt Copson did a laser light piece, which were the lights for the tree, illuminating the tree. Uh, you know, it was always like very weird and very special. And um, for both of those shows, which I almost called parties, <laughs> they were parties. Uh, I also had two musical performances. And for one of them, there was also a show, a simultaneous show on the desk uh, with Isabel McGuire. And uh, there was also a, a play later on that took place in the context of a, an opening from the desk of Lucy Bowl. So it was situated around the desk along with the tree and the space. And it was always like kind of too small for the amount of people who would attend. And it always, it, you know, uh, kind of encouraged this uh, weird intimacy and, um, I'm, you know, hoping to continue to do these sorts of shows. I, I haven't done a recent desk show since COVID. And even those uh, Christmas tree shows, um, they happened in 2020 right before COVID. And it's weird. I was even like, wow, those were like the best parties of the year. And I kind of feel like a jinx 2020 with that. 
but uh, since COVID happened, I, I did do a weird show called Crabs, and uh, I curated that with my friend Akita McCauley, and um, we invited artists to uh, work off of or on hermit crab shells that we uh, gave them, and we encouraged the use of ocean safe materials and installed them in the tide pool of Tampanga State Beach so that That's they could be amazing. I'm like obsessed the with ocean. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. It was a really fun and weird beach show. And because the tide pools in in Topanga State in at in Malibu at Topanga Beach, like they're just kind of like a pile of rubble. Uh you have to be really careful to navigate the rocks and because there were shells placed on the rocks, you also had to be careful not to step on one of the shells. And it really kind of prov uh, provoked this weird, attentive viewing experience. And I would also love to do more of those. But so basically, the desk evolved into uh, other locations, you know, and it's always sort of one show leads to the next. And um, I'm good friends with all the directors at Bell Me, uh, and they typically invite an artist maybe once a year to curate a group show. And I've always been a huge fan of artist curated shows because I think it really reveals like an interesting, um, it kind of creates like a weird understanding of, of an artist's tastes and perspective that pretty special and I usually love those kinds of group shows and um this was a very exciting thing for me to do because um I had the ability to even include some of uh, my favorite artists of all time who are even seminal to me and mix them in with uh some of my friends some people I've gone to school with, some friends in LA, uh, even one of my teachers from School of Art of Chicago, Joseph Gregory. And it was really, it was a really uh, heartfelt experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it really feels like something that wouldn't exist, you know, in, in like just like my desk projects. Like, um, it felt like a, was exactly what I had in mind somehow but and every all the connections that kind of emerged between the works uh seemed planned but I mean it was just because I have an affinity with these artists that weirdly the works all relate in this kind of magical way like even Guillaume Dernavaux's glass sphere seems like the same diameter as the, the sort of sphere belly in Elizabeth Englander's bikini crucifixion and the texture of the fingerprint in Gintaro Kawabata's ceramics is echoed in the fingerprint marks in Eugene von Bruckenheim's paintings and the the like weird simple rendering of a marble in Lee Mulliken's mar marble drawing is very similar to how Kinky Koi uh, renders pearls in her drawings. It's just like the the like sort of weird connections between the works are endless, and um, it, was, it's, it was really exciting to see it all kind of unravel. Uh, and yeah, I, I hope you can have a chance to go and check it out. Yeah. It goes down on October thirtieth. So. Oh, perfect. Plenty of time. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joseph Gridgley is a longtime friend of mine, and I think he's oh, an incredible yeah. artist. And I, I got to go fly fishing with him in Aspen Amazing. last year with Hans Ulrich. And that was pretty great because, you know, he, Joseph's a big fly fisherman, and he'd been trying to get Hans Ulrich to fly fish for a long time. And I got to be in one of Joseph's early, I don't know if it was early, but in early in my career, I got to be in one of Joseph's works after describing myself in a certain way. And oh, cool. he had, <laughs> yeah. And so that's one of the things 
you know, you have these kind of random things about your life in and around art that you're proud of. And that's that's one of the things that I'm proud of. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think that his course in exhibition prosthetics was really formative in my, you know, curatorial endeavor with from the desk of Lucy Bull. And, you know, I always, I use sort of this like streamlined kind of weird uh, stationary for the like flyers and, um, you know, just like all, all these different things. But I, I mean, I guess for listeners, like exhibition prosthetics is sort of Joseph's idea of how our perception of, of work uh, uh, you know, is shaped by all of these other elements going into a show and from the press releases and everything kind of works as like an extension of the work, like a prosthetic. And um, I mean, he's, he's incredibly interesting. And yeah, I had I the so opportunity to assist him briefly in my final semester and that was also a very special experience just working on arranging these fragments of conversations into his tableau um, was very interesting. I don't think any of um, our conversations have made their way into his, his uh, tableaus of conversations, but um, I, I did help arrange some of them. <laughs> That's awesome. He actually, he gave me one of the works to install in the glove compartment of my car. And really, and it's one of, yeah. And I mean, of course, no one would really realize this necessarily unless they read the checklist, the very Joseph move. Um, and it's really cool. So now if I'm driving someone, I can be like, hey, like, I open up that glove compartment. There's a Joseph. Of Grigley in there, <laughs> and I think it's a really cool idea. And very LA it makes me want to do a desk show in my car. You know, absolutely, that's amazing. Very intimate space too. Like how yeah. intimate can you get than a inside of a vehicle? <laughs> that's really cool. So I know you don't like to describe your own work and like what it looks like, but can you describe what this work looks like that's now in the glove compartment of your car? The Joseph Gridgley. Right. So um, I guess not everyone would know this, but Joseph is deaf. And so he accumulates a lot of ephemera from frag- like fragments of conversations because, I mean, he can read lips, but, you know, sometimes he will ask you to, you know, write down what you're trying to say. And then he'll take these um, sort of, fragments of conversation and and make works out of them and this is this is just sort of a you know an assortment of different fragments and pieces of ephemera from conversations and uh some of them are car related and others are not um Hmm. it's pretty great (laughs) i'd love to ask you about your daily rituals So we talked a little bit about when you like to paint and how you feel alive at kind of an off schedule or non-traditional kind of timing of like your work day. But I'm curious if there are other things that are part of your daily life or even a weekly practice that are kind of specific to you. I generally wake up and immediately make some pour over coffee (laughs) and I'll check my email and uh, hopefully most days I'll feel like I have time to like do a little, you know, 30 minute workout video. I think that that usually, you know, gets my kind of head in place. and just always feels really good and but definitely not every day uh and I just kind of mosey on to studio either making myself some food or picking something up 
like one of my favorite spots and and I'll kind of like bring it to studio or like have another beverage once I get to studio and I just like look at what I've been working on the night before and yeah I pretty much just live straight there um because I I'm usually always like pretty antsy to get to work and but yeah I always try to kind of like take in what I've done the night before and and just kind of like ease into working and usually that involves putting on certain music and or maybe like a podcast or maybe I like call a friend and it, I mean it depends like what I'm working on um but yeah I mean and then I do like I would love to go to the movies like that's probably my biggest hobby and I have a lot of friends who are really into film and so I'm constantly you know like trying to make get to certain screenings and I, I love to go to Q and A's with directors and that's probably my favorite hobby and yeah, yeah I mean I picked up on your reference to film a couple of times and being there on time and and the first five minutes and I love that too I love the previews and um, yeah I love going to the movies too and I, I love the ritual of it and, um, and kind of getting lost in the stories yeah I just I think with, even with the music I listen to and the movies I like like everything I like I like uh, I like to be transported and mm-hmm. um, movies you know can do that in a way that other things can I'm actually like very envious of filmmakers and how like they can present something and kind of people go into a movie expecting to sit through to the end you know yeah I mean it's part of I think why I make the paintings that I make like with such vivid color and extreme like detail and texture and like kind of they're kind of chaotic and I mean I really want to kind of titillate the senses and draw someone in and suspend the viewer's attention and make something where uh, the viewer can have a visceral reaction and just get lost and wander and not have to use their brain and just feel their way through and yeah like I'd like them to sort of function like movies I love how you just described your paintings and that as we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast you got to a place that you felt like you could do that and (laughs) I'm grateful for that that's really yeah that's awesome that's great. And the description is in the same way that your paintings are open enough for the viewer to to create their own space and their own yeah. response to, to what they're experiencing. Yeah. I, I mean, love I the idea of meandering their... and wandering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to leave room so that people can have their own experience. And I mean, it's almost someone looking at my paintings like, uh, they can be just as confounded by them as I am, you know, and I, uh, I really just, I kind of want to transfer my own experience making them over to the viewer. Hmm. That's interesting. I like that too. So Lucy, why does art matter? Oh, I don't think I'd want to live in a world where art didn't exist. This, I suppose. <laughs> Not to sound corny, but no, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's isn't it? I mean, it's a sort of lonely way we can really communicate beyond language, and I really believe in the power of art to to sort of communicate the psyche. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Now Heidi. that we've had dinner so together nice. and we've recorded a podcast together, now I have to come to your studio. <laughs> it's funny, I, it's like I, doing it I in reverse order. Yeah, no, <laughs> Usually, I would go to the studio first and then do a podcast and then have dinner. 
Um, so I, I love that we're doing it kind of out of the traditional order. I'm really it's grateful perfect. for your openness. It's great. And it's a real pleasure. And anytime you want to come by, I'd love to have you. Perfect. Take care. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.